0: They we're going to talk about Indian gaming and the history of Indian gaming. And the reason why I wanted to do this episode was because there was a lot of misconceptions about Indian gaming and, and, and you know, uh, indigenous bourgeoisie and, you know, and indigenous oligarchy from people that are not native <laughs> uh, regarding Indian gaming. And um, I, you know, I think we have to uh, talk about where it came from and how, how it works right now. So can you, I have today, I have professor, uh, how do you present, pronounce your name professor?
1: Pitchlin. Pitchlin. Pitchlin.
0: Okay, can you please introduce yourself?
1: Sure. I'm Gary Pitchlin I'm a adjunct professor of law at the University of Oklahoma and uh, have a private practice here in Norman, Oklahoma. I've been an advocate for tribes and tribal people for 43 years. Admitted to most of the tribal courts in our state and a number outside Oklahoma. I practice in front of all three of our federal district courts, uh, a couple of uh, other uh, federal district courts out of state. I'm admitted to the 10th Circuit and to the U.S. Supreme Court. And my particular expertise area that uh, is the area that I teach at the law school is federal Indian gaming law and regulation.
0: Thank you. And I think you're native too, right? Are you native?
1: I am. I'm, I'm uh, uh, half Choctaw from the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma.
0: Okay. And so my first question would be, how did Indian gaming come to native communities?
1: <clears throat> well, it's a pretty long story, and I'll <clears throat> try not to make it uh, uh, overly lengthy. Uh, really, tribal gaming began... Um, really in the 70s. The tribes had historically been reliant upon federal programs and federal contract monies as the lion's share of their tribal budgets, by which they then provided services uh, to their tribal members, also administered their tribal governments. So over time, Congress and the United States began to reduce the amount of money they were putting into those programs and that they were they were directing two tribes to support tribal governments so tribes were always looking out for business opportunities economic opportunities but of course historically when the tribes were removed from their original homelands they were placed on reservations or preserves that were generally fairly remote from populated areas and for the most part uh They were put on properties that were later taken from them again in order to expand the opportunities for immigrants to have uh, suitable farming lands. so the tribes were continually moved until they were put in positions where the lands that they held were no longer desirable for the plow, so to speak now. <clears throat> Because of that, and and the intent of Congress was always to try to make tribal people farmers essentially, yet they put them on unfarmable, untillable lands by and large. So in the 1970s, a few tribes uh, and in many cases, individual tribal members began to offer bingo games as a way of creating some additional revenues, both for personal gain and also to add new revenues to tribal coffers by which they could then support their tribal governments and tribal programs. This was when we began to see bingo offered usually in very small facilities, sometimes in old gymnasiums, sometimes in, uh, uh, in concrete buildings uh, in Indian country. <clears throat> and thus in the, in the early and mid 70s, bingo began to take off because tribes were providing larger prizes, uh, than the competitive bingo that was being offered around them, usually by charities. Uh, it, that was the, the original beginning of gaming in Indian country. It was fairly unregulated, uh, didn't make a lot of money, but created a few jobs. And really it was the inspiration of, uh, That period during the Reagan administration, when this really took off, particularly in Florida, California, uh, Minnesota, and Oklahoma, and uh, led to the growth of of, uh, that large prize bingo. uh, Tribes began to bust people into Oklahoma. Uh, We had a, a, a big busing industry here. In which there were people bused to Oklahoma from St. Louis and Kansas City, as far away as Chicago, uh, as far south as Houston, San Antonio, Texas. That was the early beginnings of tribal gaming, as as we know it now.
0: Okay, thank you for that. Uh, can you talk about the? I think one of the first cases was it the first case, California versus Cabazon Band of Mission Indians, nineteen eighty seven. Uh, well, that that's one
1: of the first cases that I think most people think of when they think of Indian gaming. But we truly have to go back earlier than that. Uh, the real critical case that made this all possible <clears throat> was uh, a case uh, out of Minnesota called Brian v. Tasca County. It had nothing to do with gaming, but as as we've often heard, you know, great wars are won small battles at a time. This is one of those examples in which a fairly small battle in which a county was trying to assess a tax on a mobile home of a tribal member uh, in Minnesota ended up being what kicked the door open for tribes in the gaming industry. In that particular case, uh, Itasca County tried to charge a uh, hundred and $47.95 in assessment against a mobile home that belonged to an Indian couple, uh, uh, Chippewa, um, on the Leach Lake Reservation in, in Minnesota. Uh, they fought that through the state courts. It eventually ended up at the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's where the U.S. Supreme Court held for the first time, effectively, that the Public Law 280 states did not have civil regulatory authority by which they could assess attacks against personal property of native people located in Indian country. That then opened the door to a couple of cases that followed uh, in the 1980s. Florida Seminole case uh, called Butterworth and the Cabazon case, which also involved the Morongo and and, uh, another tribe or two, I believe. What those cases did was, when the states tried to enforce their regulations and laws to restrict what the tribes could could do in the way of offering bingo, the size of prizes, the number of days of operation, uh, the hours of operation, uh, the tribes fought that and eventually worked their way up through the courts until the United States Supreme Court decided the Cabazon case in 1987. And in that case, the the uh, Supreme Court looked back at the Itasca County case, Brian v. Itasca, and said that the same rule applies to gaming. If a, if, the, a tri, if a state like California did not completely prohibit gaming, but instead regulated it, then they could not enforce those regulations on a tribal government because Public Law 280 did not give states civil regulatory jurisdiction and authority. It gave them criminal jurisdiction. It gave them civil adjudicatory jurisdiction to resolve disputes and conflicts. It did not give them the authority to regulate uh, activities on Indian country like gaming. So with that case, we, we learned from the Supreme Court that tribes were the sole sovereign authority to regulate gaming in Indian country. And that was then... Uh, the first step through that door that via Tasca had made available to the tribes, unbeknownst to anyone at the time.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Public Law 280 was one of the questions I had on here. Maybe we, can you cover a little bit, a quick history of Public Law 280? I think I asked, <clears throat> can you speak sure. on the history yeah, of states? Yeah, well, what is what is P, uh, Public Law 280?
1: Public Law 280 is, is the law that Congress passed in which they required that uh, a number of states assume and take responsibility for the criminal jurisdiction and prosecution of crimes on Indian country. This, this is a, uh, <clears throat> a slow movement away from tribes having total authority and jurisdiction over uh, crimes committed on Indian country, particularly by native people uh, uh, and with perpetrators that were also native people. And this began much earlier. This actually began in, in the 1880s uh, in, with a case in which a uh, a tribal police captain killed a, a tribal member and was prosecuted in the tribal court. Uh, it was a Crow Dog case, ex parte Crow Dog. Uh, if you want to look it up, it's an 1883 case. <clears throat> The tribe had prosecuted or had addressed this this uh, this event and had punished Crow Dog by fining him, uh, making him responsible for restitution to the family of uh, Spotted Tail, who was the victim. The tribe had required restitution of $600, uh, eight horses and a blanket be, to be paid by Uh, Crowdog to the family. That didn't appear in the minds and eyes of the non Indians as sufficient punishment. So in 1885, Congress passed the Major Crimes Act, which placed uh, 15 major crimes under uh, the jurisdiction of the federal courts if committed by one Indian against another in Indian country. Now, In 1953, then, Congress passed Public Law 280, giving total jurisdiction, criminal jurisdiction, uh, to six states, Alaska, California, Minnesota, Nebraska, Oregon, and Wisconsin. Uh, So so public law gave criminal jurisdiction. It also gave the authority to resolve civil disputes, like contracts, uh, et cetera, between tribal members. And that was generally because most of the tribes did not in the eyes of the non-Indians have credible forums and processes by which to resolve disputes of this kind. Now, Public Law 280 also permitted other states in addition to those six to opt to take similar criminal and and civil uh, adjudicatory jurisdiction uh, without the consent of the tribes, of course. And nine additional states chose to do so before the 1968 Indian Civil Rights Act, in which Congress then added the requirement that before a state could take jurisdiction over Indian country from that point forward, it required the consent of the tribe involved.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, My next question would be, what is the National Indian Gaming Commission Oh, I think I skipped one, sorry. The Indian Gaming, <laughs> the Indian gaming uh, Regulatory Act of
1: 1988. Yes, the, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act uh, passed in 1988 by Congress was in response to the outcry of the, the, the non-Indian world uh, to stop this growth and development of gaming in Indian country. And it really was, was anticipated prior to the Supreme Court's decision in Cabazon that, that Congress needed to step in and create a statutory scheme uh, as they said, to protect tribes and to protect the patrons and to ensure the the fairness of the games. But in truth, what that act was about was was pressure from the non-Indian gaming industry uh, states that, that had tribes within their jurisdiction all of whom wanted to put a very low ceiling over what the tribes would be able to do with this gaming uh, industry. Uh, The non-Indian gaming industry, of course, didn't want the competition. States, of course, didn't want to see uh, tribes progress and evolve uh, to have wealth that would make them stronger politically and economically within their borders. So in 1988, after a lot of Uh, opportunities that uh, had failed previously, Congress eventually passed what was considered to be a compromise bill. Compromise meaning compromise between the positions taken by the states and the non-gaming, non-tribal gaming industry and the tribes uh, to provide uh, states some involvement and to create what was seen to be a fairly low ceiling that would limit just how far tribes could progress into the gaming industry. Now, as as we watched later, uh, many of us were involved in advocating for tribes uh, through litigation in the federal courts, administrative hearings, et cetera, to basically lift that ceiling from where Congress thought they had placed it and allow the tribes to make greater progress and to expand their gaming uh, industry over time, to what it is today.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the next question is: uh, What is the na- na- What is the National Indian Gaming Commission? Now, that's <laughs> there it is. The
1: National Indian Gaming Commission is is a, a federal agency, uh, somewhat independent, um, that is responsible for the oversight of tribal gaming, primarily Class Two but it has other responsibilities that include the, the review and approval of tribal ordinances. Uh, they promulgated regulations by which they have pretty much given the tribes, the commission's view and interpretation of what IGRA says on certain issues, certain points of law. Uh, they also provide a significant amount of training, opportunity for tribal employees in, in the gaming industry uh, to become more familiar, better acquainted with federal laws and regulations, and uh, to assist the operation in learning how to operate gaming facilities within the bounds of that law. Now, the commission was created uh, originally by the act in, in 88, but for five years it, it operated with solely a chairman and not a full commission. It wasn't until uh, 1993 that there was a full commission of, of three commissioners, a chairman and and uh, and two other commissioners, by which they then began in 1993 to promulgate and, and uh, put in play regulations for the first time. So a five-year period there, there was a chairman who acted pretty much as the czar of tribal gaming, acting uh, independently and without any checks or balances by anyone. It was not necessarily a particularly fruitful relationship between the tribes and the National Indian Gaming Commission during that period of time. It would improve later once there was a full commission in place.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, So my next question has to do with the the different types of Indian gaming or gaming, uh, the class one, class two, class three. I think this is an important question because a lot of non natives assume that gaming for us is just casinos, right? So, can you talk about the difference between class one, two, and three? Thank you.
1: Sure, be happy to. Part of the design of the regulatory act that Congress passed, <clears throat> as I said, was to create a low ceiling uh, to limit what tribes could achieve in the development of their gaming business. To do that, and to also recognize and appreciate the concerns of states over what states argued would be unregulated gaming in Indian country, Congress decided to break up gaming into three classes of gaming. Class one, as designed and, and written into the act, basically addressed the issue of games of chance that, that were a part of tradition. Uh, traditional tribal celebrations and festivities, if you will. Those things generally would, would include horse racing, uh, hand games, stick games, those kinds of things that were traditional to tribal culture. And, and they were not intended to be something that were, were ongoing activities throughout the year, but just those things that operated for a few days or a week during that period of time that tribes were carrying out these traditional uh, ceremonies or activities. Class one gaming, therefore, was a fairly low economic uh, impact event. And uh, they left the regulation of of class one gaming solely to the tribes. Uh, No part for the state the federal government national gaming commission played no significant role in class one gaming class two gaming then <clears throat> was designated to be bingo and other games that were traditionally and historically played in conjunction with bingo. Uh, those kinds of things would be uh pool tabs, uh, <clears throat> scrape, uh, You know, scrape uh, tickets, uh, tip jars, things like that. Again, those were of some value, more so, of course, than class one, because they could operate throughout the year. But there was also this requirement that tribes could only operate class two gaming in those states that did not prohibit, but permitted class two gaming to be played. Uh, although regulated and limited to some degree. Class two gaming was to be regulated by tribes and by the National Gaming Commission. Class three gaming is simply defined as all other games of chance, uh, not covered in class one and class two. So it's class three gaming in which tribes would have access to casino-type games, uh, the typical slot machines, roulette wheels, craps tables, etc. Now the, the the limitation on class three gaming that was so important and so difficult for tribes to uh, address was that in order to conduct class three gaming, a tribe first had to obtain a compact or an agreement with its host state, which would specify the scope of gaming, the kind of games that could be played, and any other particular limitations, things like jurisdiction um, uh, and and regulatory oversight by states on some occasions. So those were the three classes of gaming that were created by Congress. Never before had anyone come up or or apply the concept of classes of gaming. Gaming was always gaming. Uh, If chance was involved, if there was a wager, uh, if there was a prize and the winning of a prize or award was dependent upon chance, it was gaming. And in most jurisdictions in the United States, uh, after 1900, gambling was illegal. So those were the that's that's explanation of what the classes of gaming were about, and uh, and and why that classification uh, was created.
0: Thank you. Yeah. So the next question is about tribal compacts. Uh, so it's, it's kind of like a lengthy question. Um, can you speak about tribal state compacts, and uh, you know uh, states have to. Um, have good faith obligation and negotiate with Indian tribes in good faith? Do you feel, and then you know, the part of the second question is, uh, <clears throat> do you feel states negotiate in good faith most of the time or do you, do, do, do you think that they sometimes hinder on tribal sovereignty?
1: Well, let me, let me answer the last question first and then we'll go into a discussion of this. Uh, everything about the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act is is an invasion and uh, encroachment upon the sovereignty of tribes. Once the Supreme Court had ruled in Cabazon that tribes were the sole sovereign authority over gambling in Indian country, everything that occurred after that through the act <clears throat> was an encroachment and a diminishment of the sovereignty of tribes. So let's be clear about that from the beginning. Congress was not truly doing tribes a favor by passing the regulatory act. They were, in fact, creating limitations uh, and obstacles, many of which the tribes were able to overcome. But nonetheless, they were creating obstacles and limitations to the exercise of the sovereign authority of tribes. Now, as to the compacts, as I said earlier, in order for tribes to operate and conduct Class Three gaming, uh, before they could offer that, of course, there were certain requirements. Tribes had to have an ordinance uh, approved and uh, reviewed and approved by the uh, commission. Um, tribes had to have requested and negotiated a compact with their state, which entitled the tribe to conduct class three gaming. Now, uh, the subject of class uh, of compacting is, is found at 25 U.S.C.A. 2710 D1C, I believe. And then the process of of how you go about obtaining a compact is then covered in part three, A, B, and C. Essentially what the tribe had to do was to make a formal written request uh, uh, of the state, typically sent to the governor, requesting that the state negotiate with the tribe uh, over the subject of a class three gaming compact. And and then the state would respond generally to that request. The the act described a process by which within six months, if the state had not responded and negotiated with the tribe, the tribe would have the authority to bring an action in federal court. Uh, this, This was also possible even if the state had responded and negotiated, but the tribe felt that the state had negotiated in bad faith. In other words, had made demands upon the tribe as a part of the compact or had refused the tribe's overtures uh, without lawful basis or reason. That was as Congress described it uh, in their discussions and and, uh, hearings to be a safety valve to ensure that states, Did not unduly deny the tribes the right to class three gaming or make demands upon the tribe that were not related to gaming before a tribe would be able to get the compact and conduct class three games. That the process itself is described at at part three, A, B, and C, and within there at A1 is the good faith reference that in the process of negotiating this class three compact, the state is required to negotiate in good faith. And thus the process that I described of litigation in federal courts by the tribes where they feel the state has not negotiated in good faith was made available as that safety valve to allow the federal courts to oversee uh, the conduct of the state and the tribe in that process. Now, as to the the question of do I feel that states negotiated in good faith, generally, I would say no. Uh, And and the real, I guess, the real foundation or proof of that, evidence of that, is the numerous lawsuits that were filed by tribes all over the country against their states who had refused to negotiate outright or had tried to demand that the tribes give up things like criminal jurisdiction, uh, uh, taxation, other kinds of authorities that the states did not have lawfully. Those things were not related to gaming and thus under the, the regulatory act were not appropriate subjects for that negotiation event. Uh, as the tribes began to litigate the, the state's conduct and whether it Uh, measured up to the good faith requirement of Congress in the act, the tribes were winning those lawsuits. So it wasn't until the early 90s then that states began to argue that Congress didn't truly have the authority to require them to negotiate with the tribes using uh, both 11th, uh, 11th Amendment sovereign immunity defense, and also in some cases, the 10th Amendment Uh, defense, that the the, the reserve powers uh, allowed the states to make their own decisions about when to contract and what to contract for. So by and large, the whole process was skewed. States were not negotiating in good faith. Uh, They were making demands that they didn't have the authority to make. And so tribes were testing them successfully in the federal courts.
0: Yeah, I have a little comment. You know, during law school, one thing that was a constant um, theme in in, you know within uh, the history of our sovereignty is I noticed that states were always trying to chip away at our sovereignty. You know, (laughs) and it was just like the most frustrating thing to read in law school was that you know it states just undermining us on different things, you know, water rights or gaming rights or, you know, it, it's, it's very frustrating. Um, but, uh, you know, this is, you know, a little bit off topic, but this is why to me, it's a little weird that states will now w- want to recognize. You know, communities as native people, rather than being federally recognized when they're in the same time hindering our sovereignty to put in a way to me, it's just like it's the most ironic thing that's happening to us right now. But that's a different... <laughs> different. Well, that, there's
1: a long history uh, there. And I think we understand that there have always been clashes and conflicts between sovereigns. Uh, I mean, even, even, even the world wars were conflicts between sovereigns who had different agreements uh, or different ideas uh, about the extent of their powers and authorities. And so one would test the sovereignty of another, that would lead to conflict. It's no different between tribal governments and state governments. State governments have always wanted to take more and more authority over the tribes within their boundaries. We know that that, that the constitution places uh, authority in the hands of the federal government for most things tribal Uh, over time. I think that Congress and the federal government have been somewhat lax in their oversight and enforcement of their authority over tribes and tribal affairs by allowing the states to encroach upon the sovereignty of tribes, which in truth is also an encroachment on the sovereignty of the United States government. But because of the lack of feeling of the importance or significance of tribal sovereignty, the federal government have allowed states in many case, cases over long periods of time to continue to encroach gradually into the sovereign authority of tribes, including their lands and, and, uh, and jurisdiction uh, of their lands. So, you know, we saw that just in the last uh, couple of years here <clears throat> with the McGirt decision in Oklahoma, that finally the federal courts. Have called the, the state to task over a long standing practice of the state of Oklahoma in this case, simply assuming that they had authority over those, over those reservations when they did not. And once a state is allowed to encroach, it's very difficult to reel that state in again. Uh, so the McGirt decision is a very important decision for that reason alone that states now are having to kind of step back and reassess what authority and jurisdiction they do have over tribes and and over tribal lands and tribal members
0: yeah thank you you know and i people are listening i want them to you know a lot of people especially non-natives uh talking about sovereignty is kind of confusing to them and I speak to you know acquaintances and you know other people that are not natives, and I had to sit down and explain to them how you know our sovereignty works, with, you know, with the states and with the federal government. You know, a lot of this stuff um, requires law school, <laughs> so if you don't understand, <laughs> you know, it's okay to ask <clears throat> questions. Maybe we can do a follow up uh, episode. We actually went through the, the first episode's questions within thirty minutes. Do you want to continue to do the second episode's questions too?
1: Oh, I'm happy to. And let me just say something about the question of sovereignty. What what most non-Indians and and non-law school educated, and when I say law school educated, I mean people that have gone to law schools that have actually introduced them to the area of federal Indian law and provided this background. What most people don't understand is the sovereignty of a tribe is the same as the sovereignty of a state or the United States government. Sovereignty is an inherent authority of a people to decide how they will be governed and who that government will be led by to determine who their members are and to create their own laws by which that culture, that community will be governed and and will bring order to their activities. The sovereignty of tribes predates, all states predates the United States of America. So in the the settlement and expansion of the United States from colonies to states sweeping across the, the whole continent, the United States and the colonies before it understood that it was easier to negotiate agreements with all these independent nations of, of indigenous people, rather than to have to fight wars with each of them, a very costly approach to resolving that dispute. So from the very beginning, the colonies in the United States recognized the independence and the sovereign authority of these tribal peoples by treaties, by specific language within those treaties, as was pointed out by, uh, by, the, by the Supreme Court in the McGirt decision, they have specifically identified and, and, and agreed that these tribal sovereigns have certain authorities within themselves of their own, and the United States government has chosen to uh, understand that and to concede that. Now, in those treaties, particularly this McGirt decision I'm talking about, the treaties that removed the five tribes from the southeast of the United States to the Indian Territory, now Oklahoma, had very explicit language in there that said that once the tribes ceded their claims to the lands in the east and came to the territory, that never again would the tribe or tribal members be subjected to state or territorial law that is a very clear promise within those treaties uh, that Justice Gorsuch uh, identified as the focal point of the ruling in the McGirt Murphy cases that have resolved that those reservations created by those five tribes were never dissolved. The boundaries are still intact. Those are still reservations. None, you know, no matter how many non-Indians have now purchased lands, Cities have grown up and developed, doesn't matter. Those are still reservations because Congress never changed that. So the sovereignty of tribes is an inherent sovereignty. It's not something that the United States government gave to tribes. It's something that the United States government identified was in place, did exist, and they chose to honor that. And those treaties reflect that.
0: Yes, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, if you're listening, our sovereignty is super important. <laughs> so, and I'm always like talking about it during the podcast. Like we have to talk about sovereignty. You know, like it's super important. Okay, so going to episode two questions. Um,
1: well, there was one more question that we didn't cover that you had on section one, and that was uh, in regard to the uh, oh yes to the Seminole case.
0: Yes. <clears throat> What is the significance of the Seminole tribe versus Florida in 1996 when it comes to tribal state compacts? Yeah, you're right. Thank you.
1: uh, That's sort of an extension of the discussion of compacts. As I said, the tribes are required to negotiate compacts with their states. The Seminole case was the case that eventually, in that battle between the Seminole tribe and the state of Florida, over whether Florida had negotiated in good faith, that case reached the United States Supreme Court. Uh, now the case was decided in 1996, but I can tell you there were other cases that the Supreme Court was looking at at the time they agreed to hear Seminole. One of those cases was a case that, that I was uh, uh, litigating for the Ponca tribe here in Oklahoma. Um, the issue was, did Congress have the authority to subrogate the state's sovereign immunity through the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act and thereby giving the the federal courts jurisdiction to hear the claims of the state against, I mean, the claims of the tribe against the state who were alleged to not have negotiated in good faith in accordance with the Regulatory Act. Now the states had begun raising these 10th and 11th Amendment defenses uh, the Ponca case that we filed in Western District Federal Court here in Oklahoma was dismissed fairly quickly on a motion uh, based on 10th and 11th Amendment defenses. We appealed that to the 10th Circuit, and the 10th Circuit reversed that ruling, holding that Congress did have that authority based on precedent uh, uh, from earlier that Supreme Court had issued and. I believe it was the Union Gas, uh, Pennsylvania versus Union Gas or New York, I think it's Pennsylvania, Uh, just a few years before. Now, the Seminole case came out of Fifth Circuit at the time, and it also had been appealed to the Supreme Court. And I, I felt that the Supreme Court was more likely to hear Seminole because Seminole involved simply the 11th Amendment defense of sovereign immunity did not include the 10th Amendment defense that was in the Oklahoma and Ponca case. The Supreme Court heard Seminole and determined that because the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act uh, was basically promulgated and and adopted under the Indian Commerce Clause and and not through the 14th Amendment, that Congress did not have the authority to to abrogate the state's sovereign immunity, and to do so, they had to they had to basically reject and repeal the earlier decision that had been issued in the Union Gas case, which held that the commerce clause was a viable means of the federal court abrogating state sovereign immunity. So, at the time we won that argument in the circuit court for the Ponca tribe in 1994, uh, or five, uh, that was the law. Union gas was the law that the Supreme court had, had, had issued. So the Supreme court had to change its mind about whether it had, whether Congress had that authority under the commerce clause in order to rule against the Seminole tribe in their litigation with the state of Florida. What, the, you know What the Supreme Court did in that case was they struck down the, 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 the extension of jurisdiction to federal courts that Congress had written into the Regulatory Act and basically eliminated that safety valve of good faith negotiation uh, that was required of the state. It threw the negotiation of compacts into a real upheaval, and it gave the state's pretty much a veto authority to simply deny and reject offers of negotiations so that those tribes and states that did not have compacts by 1996 were in for a long and difficult road to obtain them after the seminar, really.
0: Thank you. Yeah, my mic was off. Sorry. <laughs> um, so next question is, what is the role of the Secretary of Interior when it comes to Indian con- gaming contracts?
1: <clears throat> well, the, the role of Secretary of the Interior uh, was pretty much absolute before the act that if you were going to enter into a contract with a tribe, uh, particularly that involved uh, tribal lands, which was, was always a part of those earlier gaming uh, agreements, uh, under, uh, uh, under Section 18, there had to be a sectoral approval of those contracts before they were enforceable uh, by the parties to the agreement, tribes and their non-tribal business partners. So previous to the passing of the Regulatory Act, there were a lot of large bingo operations uh, ongoing that were essentially partnerships between tribes and whoever the vendor might be uh, that had negotiated that agreement with the tribe and and we saw a lot of situations in which the vendors, uh, through those contracts were reaping far greater economic benefits than were the tribes. So built into the regulatory act were certain requirements that would limit what the management companies, for instance, could demand and receive in compensation for manage a gaming facility for a tribe. It guaranteed that the tribe would receive at a minimum 60% of the profits of that operation. Uh, it also limited the period of time uh, that a management company could be in that business with the tribe under contract to a period of seven years. Uh, uh, We saw that in many of those situations, tribes had been operating gaming with management companies for some years before that and might not have been receiving more than 20 or 30 percent of the revenues previous to the act. So uh, the secretary lost much of its much of that office authority over gaming with the passing of the regulatory act and the establishment of the national and gaming commission who took on much of those responsibilities. Secretary still had authority through the Bureau of Indian Affairs to make determinations of whether lands that were selected by the tribe to be used for gaming were in fact eligible for the use uh, of gaming. Uh, and, and we know that in the act itself, uh, the date of October of 1988 was the cutoff line for taking new lands and trust for the purpose of gaming. So that was another responsibility of the secretary was to agree to take lands and trust for gaming just as a part of the exercise of that authority in general to take lands and trust for the benefit of tribes. Uh, so the secretary continued to have some authority and some oversight, but the secretary's role in Indian gaming was significantly diminished with the passage of the regulatory act in the creation of the commission to undertake much of that responsibility
0: okay thank you uh, so you mentioned tribal gaming regulatory authorities uh, what are they and what are their roles within indian gaming <clears throat> well
1: regulatory uh, activity over tribal gaming begins with the tribe's own gaming ordinance and and those ordinances will establish a a a tribal gaming regulatory authority. Um, They may be called various things, but essentially the the first level of regulation of tribal gaming is the tribe's own created regulatory authority. Now, beyond that, for class two gaming, for instance, the National Gaming Commission also has oversight over class two gaming. As to class three gaming, the the regulation and the authority to regulate Class three gaming is established in the compacts. Uh, Many times the compacts that tribes that are into with states will allow the state some significant role in the regulation of that gaming activity. Uh, But in other states like Oklahoma, uh, the the state's role in regulation of gaming is pretty much at a distance in oversight related Uh, And and the state of Oklahoma does not have direct regulatory authority over tribal gaming. That's left to to each tribe's own regulatory authority, uh, subject to uh, controls of of regulations and the regulatory act, uh, uh, basically enforced by the National Gaming Commission.
0: Yes, I have a question, but I want to move it down like a couple slots um, before we talk about the you know. Indigenous bourgeoisie <laughs> comments. Uh, I do. My next question would be: Can we talk about the National Indian Gaming Commission uh, revised gaming ordinance of 2018? What's the significance to that?
1: <clears throat> well, I think I think the the whole purpose of the revised gaming ordinance of uh, uh, of 18 was to to bring shall I say uh, harmony. Uh, to the way tribes uh, were operating and regulating. Uh, You know, over over time, for instance, uh, the gaming equipment uh, has evolved and it's required from time to time, some adjustment in the way we regulate the industry. Uh, You know, it's uh, gaming as, as it evolved, even class two gaming evolved from simply bingo cards and and daubers to electronic uh, bingo gaming activities. Uh, So we had to step up the way we regulated class two gaming. And then as as tribes evolved into class three gaming, it became more and more technical, uh, more and more provocative, shall I say, the opportunity for people to try to cheat games. <clears throat> and thus part of what has happened is we have evolved into a very heavily regulated and secured gaming operation. So the national League gaming commission simply modifies it, it's rules and it's, and it's, uh, regulations to adapt to those changes. Uh, for instance, uh, you will probably never see a gaming floor that is better viewed and watched than a class three tribal gaming operation floor. Uh, The monitors in security rooms, the number of employees whose sole role is to observe the floor and observe the activities, not just of the patrons, but of the employees that are working on those gaming floors. Uh, Tribes have learned a lot early on from the non-gaming industry as to where the dangers are and and how to to eliminate those risks. Uh, Because frankly, most of the graft and theft that occurs in casinos is not by the patrons, but by the employees of those casinos that's true of the non-gaming industry and it's true of the gaming industry so the the risks are limited by having very thorough and and very up-to-date monitoring systems and having a a staff of uh, people that are observing the floor and watching for those critical things that might hint at uh, some untoward activity on the gaming floor. <clears throat> but, uh, but changes in, changes in the uh, ordinances, changes in the regulations are all basically directed at continuing to try to uh, ensure the, the safety and security and fairness of the games offered by the tribes and to eliminate the risks of theft and, uh, and losses.
0: Thank you. Yeah, my next question is about that strictness too, uh, about, um, can you talk about tribal gaming commissions, how they, they are created and the background investigations that are made to set up licensing process? <clears throat> and I know getting a gaming license is not easy. <laughs> so, yeah. No, no it, it
1: isn't. Um, I, I would say that tribal gaming is, is in my view, uh, from my observations, over 30 plus years probably the, the most highly regulated and thoroughly regulated gaming industry in the world. Now, part of the way this works is that to be a tribal gaming employee, you, of course, have to make application and you have to be issued a license to, to work in that gaming facility. Uh, this involves uh, background investigations and uh, and interviews. and the the act itself speaks to the manner of conducting uh licensing uh tribal gaming authorities are organized under the tribal gaming ordinance <clears throat> which has to be reviewed and approved by the national gaming commission ordinances will establish their own regulatory bodies <clears throat> excuse me and, and those bodies will vary in size Gaming commissions in the beginning <clears throat> might've simply been a single gaming commissioner, but as those tribal gaming operations became larger uh, and, and more complicated, the practices evolved into having gaming commissioners and then building around those gaming commissioners, uh, a, a staff of people that have specific responsibilities to ensure that they that, that carry out the duties that are uh, incumbent upon the gaming commission by the tribes ordinance. So to get a a license, for instance, an employee uh, that's being considered would have to disclose uh, a great deal of information uh, about themselves, uh, their financial uh, circumstances, uh, for instance, whether they have ever uh, filed bankruptcies Whether, they, uh, uh, whether they've ever been convicted uh, of, of certain offenses, particularly felonies, or offenses that show uh, a tendency uh, of dishonesty. And, <clears throat> and only then, once, once those background checks have been uh, completed and, and the, re- the reports re- re- returned, can those people be licensed fully Uh, to work in those tribal gaming facilities uh now tribal gaming commissioners are typically going to be appointed uh by the tribe itself the governing body or uh, if if they have established a board to oversee their gaming operations uh, that board uh, may play a role in selecting their gaming commissioners Uh, But gaming commissions are, by design, supposed to operate somewhat independent of the tribal political body. And and that is so because of the need to make sure that that commission has the authority to act when it finds, uh, for instance, embezzlement or uh, improper conduct on the part of gaming employees to have the authority to freely pull Licenses or to suspend licenses or to impart other forms of consequence on bad behavior uh, by tribal gaming employees. It doesn't always work that way. Uh, In many cases, tribal gaming commissions are subject to uh, significant political influence uh, from the tribes uh, that own those operations so that the independence of those. Uh, gaming commissions may not be as as broad as uh, as was intended or, or as they ought to be, <clears throat> but gaming commissions are the ultimate regulatory authority over tribal gaming. They are the first level of enforcement and security for the tribes to secure uh, the the value that the tribe is to receive from their gaming operations, and to make sure that. For instance, uh, uh, people are not employed in gaming facilities that have backgrounds that would indicate that they possibly could not be trusted in such key positions uh, of handling money or having responsibility over the value created by the gaming facilities.
0: Yes, thank you for that. Yeah, you know, talking about ending gaming commissions and, um, you know, there's, there is there's um, the next question is kind of like uh, why I wanted to talk about this. Uh, there was a big debate on the internet about what is land back, what is decolonization, all these political things regarding native people. Uh, <coughs> one, one of the things that um, some, uh, you know, a group of people that were not native started criticizing uh, indigenous sovereignty and indigenous you know, Indian gaming. And, you know, me, you know, reading these critiques, I, they, there was even critiques by a person that was from like South America critiquing Indian gaming and it was really like poor, you know? And it was, it was, it was really hard for me to read these things because um, a lot of people that don't understand our sovereignty are not going to understand our gaming, <laughs> you know. And I think uh, they started saying that you know gaming, the casinos are you know controlled by uh, in the indigenous bourgeoisie, you know indigenous capitalists, you know small small oligarchy of natives, you know. When obviously, you know, <clears throat> you know, um, hearing the last hour, hearing you speak, there's a lot of regulations of preventing this, right? Uh, can you? can you, when you hear things like this, what goes to your, you know, what, what do you think like about these comments or, you know, what's your opinions on this, these type of, con, type of comments?
1: Well, I, I think in general, what I have observed <clears throat> from those kinds of comments is that they are made by people either that do not understand the historical and legal background of the relationship of tribes to the United States and <clears throat> And, and the fact that state governments are not a party to that relationship directly, or they are people that uh, have observed the success of certain tribes, and particularly those tribes that are small in number in terms of tribal members. Uh, for instance, the, the, the small tribes in Connecticut, Minnesota, Southern California, <clears throat> those tribes make hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars a year in profits from gaming. And, and to observe those tribes get to that point where they decide to pay out significant per capita payments to their tribal members, I think draws a lot of criticism simply out of jealousy. Uh, and, and the observation that we have seen over a generation or two a significant change in the economic status and social status and standing of Indian people in certain parts of this country. So a lot of that is simply ignorance of the history and the law, but a lot of it also comes from pure jealousy, uh, and and I'll just say it, economic racism. Uh, People do not like to see people of color succeed to the degree that, that many people of color have succeeded in, in the past. And for Indian people, which it's really just been in the last couple of generations that we've seen this occur in key locations. What they also don't consider is that is not the experience for most tribes and most tribal people. Most tribes, like my tribe, the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, although very successful in gaming with a number of casinos in Southeastern Oklahoma, the fact that there are over 400,000 tribal members of the Choctaw Nation does not make it possible for those gaming revenues to change the lives of each of those tribal members. So instead of paying out per capita payments to those members, my tribe, like many others, simply puts those profits into tribal programs and to reinvestment in other economic ventures that will create more jobs and greater opportunities for tribal members and other members of the communities that the tribes uh, operate and and live in. So it's hard to say that there's something wrong with a tribe paying a large amount of their profits to their tribal members when there's only 50 or 100 of them, and they're making hundreds of millions of dollars a year. I mean, there are only so many houses that you need to build to house your tribal members. There's only so much health care that needs to be uh, provided. Uh, Only so many people going to college that need education funding, et cetera, et cetera. So you reach a point at which, what is the purpose of this profit now? Well, the purpose of the profit in the end is to benefit your tribal members. If you provided all the programs and all the assistance that is needed by your tribal members, then it makes some sense that some of those funds ought to go directly to the tribal members. And in certain cases, it makes a substantial difference in the lives of those people. In others, uh, it only affects them tangentially through tribal programs and uh, and certain assistance that that can be had. Perpetuate the tribe and and its culture and its tradition and its languages. Uh, So that's my response to those kinds of criticisms and those kinds of comments.
0: Thank you. You know, I I think you touched a little bit about per cap. You know, I think one one of the questions was, what is per cap? And what percentage of gaming Oh my my phone turned off? What what percentage of gaming revenue goes to per cap? But before I before I get into that, um, I think we talked before, you know, recording. And I think you mentioned you work for the Comanche Nation. Um, And am I right?
1: I did early on. I haven't worked for the Comanche Nation in uh, in quite a few years now. But I, at one time, I, I was their gaming attorney back in the uh, uh, early mid '90s. Um, did some other work for the uh, uh, office of the chairman, I think, in the early 2000s. Okay, uh, but it's been
0: it's been close to 20 years since I worked directly for the tribe. So when I talk to you know non natives about gaming, I I, I give the Comanche Nation as an example, right? Uh, our casinos, we don't only have casinos in our economy. I think we have a water park. We have a, a golf course, if I'm right, uh, smoke shops. And, you know, um, you know, other tribes have other things they have. I think Hard Rock Cafe is owned by natives, right, um, which sure. is a global <laughs> enterprise. <clears throat> and I think it's huge. You know, I, I heard of cruise liners and I heard of so, so many other, you know, cannabis um, farming so many different avenues we have in our economies it's not just gaming but in our economy um our economy is not owned by a small group of comanches it's owned by the tribe as a whole you know we elect our le- elected officials and they they conduct business for us and if there is corruption we vote them out just like we did recently this year with our chairman right and um you know that's that's part of our, our, our sovereignty. We 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 you know we decide who is fit to to you know to serve us as elected officials, but you know with all this money from the economies from different avenues, we have over a hundred programs, right? Uh, it, it can go from you know a mold in your house. You can build build tornado shelter. You know eyeglasses, daycare, uh, education benefits. You know we have a. a a school, our language program, which is super important, you know, and all these other other things we fund with our economies. Um, And it's not owned by anybody, you know, and if you really think about, you know, if people really analyze it, like it's very nationalized. If if this was, if we were a country of our own, it would be, (laughs) it would be very communist, right? It's owned by nobody. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets the benefits of these economies, you know. Um, But the thing is, you know, it, it to me it's weird seeing, uh, and on top of that, we we hire non natives too in our casinos, in our businesses. You know, we we donate to infrastructure, the, the lo- local infrastructures as well. So you know, so to me it's really strange um, hearing these critiques about Indian gaming being like this like evil empire, evil industry within you know within the, the native community when. It's it's helping us thrive. Right. And it's just strange to me.
1: Well, I can tell you that the, the general opinion toward tribal gaming, I find to be very different in the more urban areas where tribes have been fortunate to find themselves and to be able to conduct gaming operations. Southern California, for instance, uh, uh, because in in the rural areas of, of the country, like in Oklahoma, uh, my tribe is in southeastern Oklahoma. There are no large rural, I mean, no large uh, populated areas in the rural part of Oklahoma. There are two large cities, Oklahoma City and Tulsa, but the Choctaws have a lot of smaller towns uh, in their 10 and a half county areas. <clears throat> the impact that that the development of gaming by the Choctaw Nation has had on those 10 and a half counties is recognized by the people, the citizens of the state that live in those counties, Indian and non-Indian, as being a significant economic shot in their arm. They have created jobs that would never have been created in those rural areas. They have lifted up the pay scales. They have made contributions to education, Uh, law enforcement, uh, fire, health, hospitals, schools, you name it. Uh, The Choctaw Nation sees itself as a part of that community, and they don't want simply to profit themselves, but they want to raise the floor of the economics of that community that they're in. That benefits not just their tribal members, but it benefits everyone that lives in those communities. So the attitude towards tribal gaming Uh, you're going to hear a very different story in those rural areas that were hurting for jobs and hurting for economic growth prior to tribal gaming coming to town.
0: I agree. You know, you mentioned Southern California twice. I grew up in the 80s and the 90s and early 2000s here in Southern California and, you know, seeing the local Native communities Uh, And their casinos become like this economic giants. (laughs) In my point of view, it's amazing to see, you know. I I remember one, I forget what year it was, I went to Angel Stadium uh, and I saw a a, a billboard for Pechanga, you know, Mm -hmm. the Pechanga tribe in in Angel Stadium. And I was like, what's going on here? How big are you? You know, like, and, you know, and just going to the casinos, you know, uh, myself, and I I was just impressed you know, what what they were doing. <clears throat> and, you know, you hear stories too of like tribal members getting, you know, uh, per capita, like 10,000 a month or something like that, you know, but but you, like you said earlier, there's only like, they, they have really small uh, communities. Like there's like a couple of hundred within there. I don't know if you what the numbers are, but yeah. other communities in Southern California, sometimes some, some of them are really small compared to, you know, Comanche Nation. Last time I checked it was like 17,000 right and right. we get our per capita one and a half thousand dollars a year which is really nothing you know it does help with bills you know yeah. as a tribal member or it's not going to
1: change your life that's it's for not. sure yeah <clears throat> oh,
0: oh, help with christmas presents you know because we get in november I'm, you know i'm supposed to get it this week <laughs> but you know it's one of those things that um you know but it, you know what's what i'm more grateful of is the programs that it's it's helping in the language program. It's feeding to, you know, funds for for, for the tribe and everything else that, you know, for, for locals. Um, so my next question is, uh, what is, so people listening that, that don't know, they're not Natives, what is per capita or per cap?
1: Yeah, give, give me just a check. And I, I need to attend to stop you. I'll be right back and then we'll, okay. we'll cover that question.
0: Okay. That's okay. Okay, we're back. Um, I think the question was, what is per cap? and what percentage of per cap, or what what percentage of Indian gaming goes into per cap?
1: Okay, Uh, first part of the question is what is a per cap? Uh, A per cap is simply, uh, as it uh, implies, is a payment per head uh, generally to tribal members uh, in in this, for purposes of this discussion. For instance, One of the best examples that I know is the Osage Nation uh, under the 1906 Act. Congress created a, a system by which uh, all the mineral income uh, of that tribe in the reservation, which was substantial, would be divided equally among 2,229 Osage that were the original, uh, what we call headright holders. So whatever the income was uh, in a year would be divided equally between those 2,229 Osage tribal members. Headright basically equates to a per capita payment. In other words, an equal payment for each person that is eligible to receive that payment. For tribes, it would be tribal membership would be the controlling factor uh, that would make you eligible to receive a per capita payment. Uh, In regard to uh, a percentage of gaming revenues that goes towards per capita payments, I don't think anyone has bothered to calculate that kind of number, but it will vary from tribe to tribe. For instance, uh, one tribe uh, might choose to, uh, commit itself to a specific value, a specific number, of how much per tribal member we're going to pay each year or each month to our tribal members from our gaming revenues. Now, that that is not a very wise approach, in that you're dependent upon the income continuing to be generated at the same level or more in order to be able to afford uh, what might be a very affordable payment right now, but might not be later in a time of economic crisis uh, and might put significant constraints or burdens on the operation of your tribal government and your tribal gaming facility by having to pay out more of those revenues than were anticipated. The Wise Tribe, Uh, if they're going to pay a per cap at all would make that per cap based on a percentage of your gaming revenues. And, and I believe that's what most tribes have done. Uh, Although there were a few that I know, and again, you know, referring to Southern California as an example, there were a few tribes in Southern California that were making so much money that I presume like is, 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 tendency of human beings to anticipate that that was going to go on forever. <clears throat> then with those economic crises that came about, the gaming revenues took a hit. <clears throat> and yet they were still committed to pay to their tribal members a fixed amount of money, <clears throat> which they couldn't afford. I think that was also a problem for uh, uh, perhaps the, the Pequots in Connecticut at one point, which put them in also into some significant economic strain. So that's what a per cap is. It's it's a payment to all eligible members who are eligible to receive payments. It is based on whatever equation you create as the manner by which you're going to calculate what that amount of that payment is going to be, and whether it's going to be an annual payment, semi-annual payment, or a monthly payment. And by the way, once those gaming revenues are paid out to tribal members. <clears throat> when the tribal member receives that, that is taxable income. Yeah. In terms <laughs> of uh, federal taxes, will apply to those monies, and those individuals will be obligated to pay taxes to the federal government.
0: Yeah, I know. I one time, one time, I didn't claim <laughs> my perk, <purse. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> I learned real quick. <clears throat>
1: So, well, I'm, I'm, sure, <clears throat> I'm sure that your error was nowhere near uh, the impact of the error that was made in Florida by the uh, Mecosuke tribe, which resulted in a great deal of litigation.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. You know, I, I think we covered all the questions, and I, you know, I hope people understand. Um, I, I also find it weird that non-natives have opinions on our economies other than, you know, gaming. I mean, if we're doing something unethical. I understand that, but um, as sovereign nations, you know, uh, you don't have, like, uh, you don't have a right to tell us how to, non, you know, non natives how to uh, conduct our economy, conduct our elections, conduct our tribal governments our programs. You know, that's for us to decide. I think, you know, in my opinion, um, there's a lot of uh, encroachment, you know, on non natives and. and with all different ideologies on the right and the left, you know when it comes to um, how natives should conduct themselves, I think <clears throat> there's also natives that don't understand um, the complexities of of our sovereignty or Indian gaming you know and I, it sucks because I wish these are stuff that I think that everybody should know but with our education system, you know like I said earlier, even natives sometimes don't understand. <laughs> Our, our, our sovereignty and what the importance of our sovereignty, how important it is, you know?
1: Well, what, what I also find interesting is that tendency of <clears throat> the average citizen in this country uh, to look at everything that's uh, like the use of gaming revenues by tribes as somehow being offensive, uh, when at the same time, uh, the population of this country is so critical of socialism or anything that, that smacks of socialism. Uh, and at the same time, you know, they're all receiving their social security checks and their Medicaid cards and, and other public facilities and services uh, that, are the, that are the pure sign of, of some level of socialism. Uh, so we live in a social uh, democracy or a democratic socialist uh, country. Uh, we don't live in a pure democracy. We never have. It's always been a republic. Uh, people don't understand those concepts, uh, be they political or, uh, or, or uh, economic. So the fact that, that the capitalist system and the capitalist way of thinking is, is the crux of, or the religion of this country does collide often with the more communal concepts of tribal people and and we continue to hear that and uh, uh i choose not to be bothered by it i it's 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 simply the ramblings of uneducated people or prejudiced people so uh, i don't weigh much uh, it doesn't weigh much on me
0: yeah i agree you know uh, but i think you know hearing you know years and years about uh you know these criticisms and then it came up recently within like two months ago uh, and um I was just like, I, I got to do an episode about this. <laughs> it's just so disgusting what people are saying. You know, even even natives that that don't understand our um, our gaming and the benefits of gaming um, were critical of it in a very weird way when it comes to saying that there's like an oligarchy of natives controlling gaming, which obviously is not true, you know. And I think, um, you know, I swing really hard to the left, but even I, I'm a, I'm for you know, gaming and, uh, and, you know, using gaming revenues for programs. And I'm grateful for the programs that I used, um, you know, with, with the Commagination. And uh, and I'm grateful that other tribal members have used these programs too. So um, yeah, thank you. Do you have any last words before um, we close out the episode?
1: Not really. I, I hope that uh, we have provided enough information to answer some of the uh, questions that people would have that watch your podcast. And I don't know who your viewers are, but hopefully they are some of those people that uh, might have been critical of tribal gaming and tribes and uh, their use of their gaming revenues. Uh, and if so, hopefully they have a better understanding of, of why it is as it is and why it's the right of tribes to make their own decisions about how they use their, uh, their income. And I understand that tribal gaming is a legitimate industry, just like any other industry in this country. The difference is it's not a for profit industry, meaning that the revenues generated by tribal gaming go to first tribal programs and tribal governments to support that self determination and self sufficiency of of a sovereign government. And only when those needs have been fulfilled do they generally then go directly to benefit tribal members. Uh, it's a government to government relationship that our tribes have with the United States government and uh, by mutual agreement uh, that they might enter into agreements with state governments as well. Uh, the tribes are sovereigns and they have the right to make their own decisions about how they will, uh, how they will govern their people and how they will provide programs and their own kind of social safety net for their own tribal members.
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I think this is something that's going to be really hard to google. <laughs> so if people have questions they can, you know, uh, message the, you know, the podcast or, you know, maybe if you're really interested in this, I suggest going to um, if you can, uh, going to law school for native law, right? Which is really interesting and I think it helps the more people that, are, that go <laughs> To, you know law school for native law is, is a benefit for native people because they see the importance of our sovereignty.
1: I, I can tell you that in the, uh, in the 11 or 12 years that I have been on the faculty at the law school, that probably about 20 or 25% of the students in my classes have been native. So we are reaching a, a pretty good number of, of uh, now young lawyers or maybe not so young anymore. Uh, But we also have a a master's in indigenous legal studies that uh, is provided and are offered online. And in in those classes, uh, I think I've been doing that, uh, those lectures for about five years. And for instance, the, the, the session that just ended, I believe I had 150 students on that program. And, and I'm gonna guess in that master's program, we have a higher percentage of native students. Uh, I'm gonna say 60 or 70% of those master's students are native uh, and, and they come from all over, all walks of life, all tribes, all parts of the country. Uh, so you can get a, a good solid understanding of, of, of these legal concepts of federal Indian law, uh, either going to law school to, to get a law degree or going through the master's program which also gives you uh, a sampling of of the same uh, coverage of, of laws and, and uh, the history of this relationship.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. I went through the master's program; it was pretty good. You know, I think it's very convenient, and especially that all the classes are online, which it was convenient for people that during COVID, <laughs> the COVID hit. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think the I think the enrollment and, and online programs went up dramatically during during the pandemic. Uh, but it has been growing even before the pandemic. This has been yeah. a growing uh, uh, access point for people to continue their education. We get a lot of tribal government officials, a lot of tribal employees, uh, a lot of tribal people that just want to learn uh, to maybe take greater part in their tribal government and, and their the politics of their tribe. So it's a, it's a great resource for, for Indian people and for non-Indian people who want to understand this area of the law.
0: Yeah, I think when I was in the program, there was even people that already had their PhDs going through the program. So I think, you know, it's you it's never late to get into this field or learn about this topic. I really recommend it to anybody and everybody so we can, you know, uh, help native communities prosper not just economically economically but politically as well. So yeah, so I guess we'll end it there. Um, I want to pause recording. Thank you for coming on.
1: Thank you.